Well, good morning, Battle Creek Church. I am so thrilled that you guys are here today. In all honesty, I, I just want to say every time I'm given the opportunity to speak, I just love the fact that you guys are gathered here so that you can meet with the Lord. I don't know where your week has been. I don't know what's been going on, but I know one thing, that you're together with believers to hear from God, and I'm so excited. It's going to be incredible as we jump into week two of Won't You Be My Neighbor. Now, my name is Clint, and I'm the next-gen pastor here, and uh, I just want to welcome you uh, to this time where we're breaking open God's Word. And if you're joining us online or in our chapel or at one of our campuses, uh, it's going to be a great morning to uh, get part two of this mini-series. Now, as you've seen, uh, if you missed last week, I want to encourage you, I want to beg you actually to go back and watch last week. It was where our pastor introduced this idea uh, based on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood of Won't You Be My Neighbor? And he really gave us the plan moving forward of how we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Tulsa. He introduced this idea of Care Portal that's going to be running through our community groups. And this is just a quick plug. If you don't have a community group, all right, you don't have your people, you don't have those that celebrate with you when it's time to celebrate, those that cry with you when it's time to mourn, those that you can eat together and study Bible uh, with, you need to find a community group so you can have your people. And then once you've got your people, we're going to give you opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, as we start week two of Won't You Be My Neighbor, I was just thinking about this show. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood ran for over 40 years. And last week, you, you missed it if you didn't see it, but pastor came through this door, unzipped that jacket, sat down with a sweater on, switched his shoes, and it, it began to bring up the nostalgia of childhood. And I thought, man, I want so badly to make that entrance, to come in with the sweater and the shoes. But then I started thinking about it. It's going to be a little bit less of a PBS kids show and more like a Saturday Night Live skit, you know, like big guy in a tiny sweater. All right. I, I figured it would have came to right about here on me. And uh, but but we're going to go along with this theme because it's really important that we understand that that not only we ask the question, um, won't you be my neighbor? But the question we're looking at this week is, who is my neighbor? You know, last week, Pastor Alex told me a ton of things that I had no idea about this man who ran Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He actually said that he was a minister. How many of you guys knew that Mr. Rogers was a minister? I had no idea. But apparently, he loved studying the Bible, so much so that he studied it in the original Greek and the original Hebrew. As, as somebody who's done some of that, that is tough stuff. But Mr. Rogers saw his program that spanned four decades as a way not to be famous, but to make Jesus famous. But with fame and with you know publicity, you are going to have the chance to, to sign a few autographs and do a couple of things. And, and there were times when he would sign autographs to people and, and share with them. And, and he had the opportunity to do that. And occasionally he'd be known to sign it, not only just with his name, but with a Greek word. And as you can see in this picture we're about to put up there, there's this Greek word that you see there, and, and it says charis. Does anybody know what charis is in the Greek? It's the word grace. The word grace, that he would sign it, grace. Now, this is a really big deal because we understand grace as one thing, unmerited favor. 
Which, what does that mean for us this morning, church? It means we're to love people who don't deserve to be loved. Because that's exactly what God did with us, right? That, that we received his grace, his unmerited favor, his love, even when we didn't deserve it. Now, Romans is one of my favorite books in all of scripture. I love it because of its deep theology, its practical nature. It cuts right to the heart of things. If you grew up in church, you learned your Romans road. But in Romans chapter five, there's this powerful verse that I think sometimes we forget about. That's the picture of grace. And it's in Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. Do y'all get that? That God demonstrates his love. He gives his love. He shows us his love by sending his son before there's anything that we can do in return while we were still sinners. Love is a great expression of grace. And for over 40 years, Mr. Rogers did that by asking one simple question. Won't you be my neighbor? But I've been thinking about this Mr. Rogers neighborhood thing. I've been thinking about it of going, hey, it was awfully easy for him to say things like, won't you be my neighbor? But have you ever thought this thing? He didn't live in my neighborhood. He didn't have to do life with the people I did life with. Everybody was happy to see him. I I tell you what, he doesn't know those people on my team. He doesn't know those people I work with. He sure doesn't know my next door neighbor. And And I get that. I'm with you. So we went with the creative team and we looked up some of the worst neighbors of all time on the internet, right? Where you can find anything. There was this one guy, his name was Philip. And uh, he was very particular about his yard and the appearance of the neighborhood, but they had this one neighbor who would never mow his yard. And constantly he was like, will you clean up your yard? Will you clean up your yard? Will you fix your yard? Will you mow your yard? Time and time again, asking his neighbor, please, you represent all of us. This is an eyesore. Will you please mow your yard? Well, one day he decided, you know what? I'm going to help out. And so what did he do? Did he go over and mow the yard? Nope. He just took a match and burned the whole thing down. He just said, hey, listen, you're not going to mow it. I'll burn it to the ground. Now, there was this other lady named Tina, and she loved the extravagant things, and she built herself meticulously this koi pond in her yard. And she got it all dug out, got it amazing and pristine, and all of a sudden, she put the koi in there, but she received complaint after complaint after complaint about her koi pond, so much so that they made her remove it. And when you remove something, you know you got to put something in its place, so she put in a nice hedge which she cut into the shape of a very unfriendly hand gesture to her neighbors. (laughs) So every morning when they would wake up and look out at her yard, they would be greeted with this hand gesture. What a neighbor. But there's this other guy, a guy who, who won the lottery. This is bad news already. And he won the lottery, and so he, he diligently took all of it, paid his taxes, invested it wisely, gave to... No, he didn't do any of that. He built a demolition derby track in his backyard, which means he raced and crashed cars all night long, throwing dust on all of the neighbor's houses. And you're going, that sounds more like my neighborhood. That sounds like the people that God has entrusted me to do life with. 
I bet you can all think of that one thing that that neighbor or former friend or classmate or teammate or a work colleague did that almost pushed you over the edge. But it's in this moment that we have to remember Romans 5, 8. That God showed his love to us by giving his son while we were still sinners. That we get to give grace just like we received it. And that's the whole idea of, won't you be my neighbor? But pastor said something last week that really stuck with me, guys. I, I don't know if you were here, but when he said it, it just pierced right to the heart. You know when he says this stuff and you're like, is he talking right to me, right? I mean, it hit me. And he says, sometimes when we talk about the Good Samaritan, Sometimes when we bring this scripture up, us church folk go, I know where you're going, pastor. I know what you're getting at. And he says, sometimes our knowledge of the subject outweighs our obedience to the command. Did y'all hear that? That sometimes our knowledge outweighs our obedience. And let me tell you something, church. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before, but the Christian life is not easy. It's not for the faint-hearted that we are given much to do to impact our world. And sometimes it's very difficult. But you know the good thing, just like we sang a while ago, we have a God who can change the world. We have a God that brings victory, that can give us the perspective to change the world for the name of Jesus. So this is what I want to invite you all to do. If you've got your Bibles with you, I would love for you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, because this week we're going to finish fleshing out the passage of scripture that pastor gave us last week. And in this passage that we see Jesus kind of teaching, I'm going to set the scene. He's probably teaching. There's, there's different people from different levels of education. They're all gathered together. And this man stands up and questions Jesus out of the blue. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says this. Now, one day an expert an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. That's his motive. He's going to trip Jesus up. One day, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This man has now got this teacher who's gaining fame and favor, and he looks at him to test him, and he goes... What should I do to inherit eternal life? And, and in line of this series, it, it, the question could be heard like this. What do I have to do to get in God's neighborhood? Teacher, you tell me, what do I have to do? And in verse 26, it says, Jesus replied, now what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? This expert in the law asked him a question. Jesus says, all right, Mr. Expert. What does Moses say about this? How do you read it? And I love what Jesus did here. And this is why I love scripture is that Jesus, he thinks like we do sometimes. And he answers a question with a question. It's kind of like me after a long day of watching college football, you know, just hanging it all out there, right? You know, just making it happen, right? Watching college football all day, put the kids to bed. And then you go to the pantry to get some Oreos. And then you turn around and, oh, there's an eight-year-old who's finally learned to be quiet and snuck up on you. Did mom say you could have those Oreos? Should you even be up right now? Right? You answer a question with a question, right? You never deal with it. Jesus' motives were way more pure than mine. But here's what we know. He answered a question with a question in verse 27. It says, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
with all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, man, you hit it right on the head. Gold star, you win, correct answer. Right, Jesus said, do this and you will live. Way to go, my man. You got the most difficult question out there. This was something in this, this priesthood deal that people were constantly debating. What's the most important thing to do? Love God and something else. But this, this man, this expert in law gets it right. You're to love God and you're to love people. But this lawyer wasn't quite satisfied with the answer that he got. And in verse 29, he says this, the man wanting to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That's what the series is all about, right? It's the question that we're asking today. Who is my neighbor? He got it right. Love God, love people. But who does that mean? Surely not all people. And I can kind of see this guy kind of throwing his head back. The other Pharisees and Levites are kind of looking, they're smiling. All the other people are seeing what's about to happen. It's kind of like the movie, right? Where you're talking and, and they're, they're loud conversation and then the record scratches and it falls silence and you hear just somebody yelling over the crowd, right? And all of a sudden Jesus is at a point where the record has scratched and it falls silence. And here's these religious people and the other folks going, what is he gonna say? Now you have to understand that in this Hebrew context that this passage is written in, the word neighbor is a very hotly debated term. In most circles, it meant those the people that were close to you, the people that lived near you, someone in your own tribe, you might extend it out as far as your own country, but it definitely didn't mean pagans or Gentiles or Samaritans. If we use this definition for our life, it's the people that look like us maybe dress like us, root for the same college team as us. They spend their money on the same things we do. They watch the same TV shows. They think like us. They vote like us. They believe what we believe. And to be honest, the people that are not that aren't really worth our time or our effort to extend grace. We like being with those that are like us. And it definitely didn't include people that are not like us. So yeah, love my neighbors, love my friends, but those people over there, nah, those aren't my people. Those aren't my neighbors. That's the way this lawyer and many of those other experts in the law thought back then. They used the word of God to defend their actions. Now, none of us have ever been guilty of that before, right? Taking God's word and kind of shaping it to what we want it to say. I'm not trying to step on any toes. I'm just trying to say it's something that we can fall in the trap of. So let's go back to the story and see what God does here. And in verse 30, it says, Jesus replied with a story, as he often did with these types of questions. And he said, now there's a Jewish man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you need to know something about this, Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey. It was, it was uh, curvy, it was dangerous, and, and Jerusalem sat on top of a hill or a mountain 2,400 feet above sea level. Jericho was 1,800 feet below sea level. So not only was this a curvy road only about five yards wide, it was steep and straight downhill. It was very dangerous. It's also called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. 
And it says here as it continues on that this Jewish man was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. See, bandits and muggers knew this was the perfect place to attack people because there were curves, there were shadows, it was dangerous, it was hard to travel. And many people going from Jericho to Jerusalem were carrying extra money and oil and things to give at the temple for a sacrifice. They were easy targets. They would just wait for someone coming to Jerusalem and attack. But notice, this Jewish man, he's not only robbed, but he's beaten unconscious and he's stripped of his clothes. Now in that day, there were several ways to pick up where people were from. One of them would be their accent. Like you don't have to listen to me very long to hear this Southern drawl and know I'm from the South. Many of you just go ahead and deduct IQ points as you hear me talk, right? It's just a little slower and you're thinking, what in the world, right? But now that this man is unconscious, he's also laying there naked. They've stripped him of his clothes. Now you can't tell where he's from. Is he upper class? Does he have nice threads on? Does he have just old rags on? This is beginning to unveil the story of going, is this man who's been attacked now worth my time? Would it benefit me at all to get involved? And so Jesus, in the middle of the stories, lays out three characters. And really, guys, it's like the beginning of a bad joke. It's like a priest, a temple worker, uh, and a Samaritan walk into a bar, right? Like he, he gets out there and, and he kind of lays out these three characters. But then he says this in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road to pass by him. Now, this first guy, this priest that Jesus is illustrating to the people listening, he's a part of the upper class. He's one of those people that's highly respected, that people would know who he is. And these priests, when they worked in Jerusalem, they had this work schedule where they'd work two weeks on and then two weeks off. We think that he's coming back from his two weeks on and he's had the long shift of, of sacrificing Uh, He's been praying for people, absolving sins. He's probably just tired and trying to get home. But the question still has to be asked. Why didn't he stop? I, I mean, it isn't a matter of time or convenience. He's off work. He's headed that way anyways. But you have to understand what's going through his mind is possibly, is this person worth me doing something? He's got to be thinking, man, I've been serving at church already for the last two weeks. Isn't that enough? We ever thought that? And then what I'm already doing good enough to God? And and, and what's the problem here? What's the cost that he would have to pay? You have to understand that priests were not allowed to touch dead bodies. If you were to touch a dead body, this person was dead. He would then be defiled and he would have to go back to Jerusalem. This would cost him something huge. It would be crazy inconvenient. But in all honesty, I can kind of identify with this guy. I don't know if you guys are like this, but maybe you have a job that that costs a few more hours than what's been prescribed to you. Maybe you've got a few more extracurricular activities than your kids can actually get to. That every moment of your day is spent and organized, and when you get to the end of it, something comes in, it throws everything out of order. I can kind of identify with this guy. The other day, I took a couple of our volunteers out. 
couple of our men that serve in our next gen ministry. They were at two different campuses and I just wanted to spend some time with them. I just really wanted to get to know them, hear their heart. They're very exciting fellas. And so we're sitting there eating, uh, they're eating burgers and stuff. I'm trying to be good, eating a salad, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I'm sitting there and listening to them. And these guys are so pumped up about Battle Creek Church, what it's meant in their life, that it would wrap their arms around them, that it would empower them, that it would take them further in their relationship with Christ, that it would forward them an opportunity to serve. And they're just talking about it. And I'm asking the pastoral questions. Well, what can we do to serve you better? What ideas do you have? Let us walk beside you. And as, as I'm listening to them give their input, this waitress walks by and says, hey, did I hear you guys talking about a church? This is something that never happens, right? We tell everybody in evangelism classes all the time, this will never happen. This lady literally walked up to our table and goes, hey, so y'all go to a church somewhere? I've been looking for one. Well, these two guys just, I mean, jump all over the situation and they begin to share with her what Battle Creek Church is. And it doesn't matter where you've come from, that you can be a part here and, and asking her about her life. She had recently gone through some hard times and man, she was now in another place to live and didn't have transportation, having to get rides with other uh, people from work. And, and they were talking to her about getting to one of the campuses or nine or 11, or you can watch online. And they're just pouring over her, pouring over her, pouring over her, telling her every way that she can find a people group that will love her, that will walk beside her, and that everything that God's done in their life. And they totally wrecked my meeting. I mean, it was completely inconvenient. I didn't get everything that I needed because they're out there telling people about Jesus. But they knew what it was like to have a jam-packed schedule, a, a one-time meeting, and yet they wanted to take it because somebody had a need and they needed the body of Christ. So let's go on and look at the second uh, character in the, the parable that Jesus is painting for these experts in the law. Verse 32, he said, Now a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, this temple assistant or a Levite is probably a little bit lower down the food chain than the priest. They worked for the priest. They weren't priests. They, they worked security and crowd control. They would prep the animals, but they didn't have the same status and respect that the priest walked around with. Now, it's interesting that this, this Levite, this temple worker, goes a little bit further than the priest. It says he actually walked over and looked at the man, but then he made the conscious decision to keep going. So, so why would he do that? Why, why didn't he stop and help out? There's obviously someone who needs help, stripped, beaten, unconscious, laying on the side of the road. Now, this Levite's probably in the same predicament that the priest is in. He's worked two weeks on. He's getting his two weeks off. The priest and him probably left at the same time. The priest is on horseback. He's gone. But this guy's probably walking, and he walks up and sees this man on the side of the road. The priest got there quicker and would have already seen this guy. I mean, the fact is um, that the fact that he didn't do anything is probably based on what he saw his boss doing. Now, here's just a leadership principle. This is for free. This is not attached to anything. All right. But if you're in a place of influence, people will follow your example. They will watch the decisions that you make and they will emulate them. Now, this Levite, this temple worker had seen that his boss 
had passed by on the other side of the road. And here's the kicker. Every one of us, whether you believe me or not, has a measure of influence with other people. Uh, you, You may not be the boss where you work, but there are people that look to you and will follow your influence. That can be someone in your class at school. It can be someone on the sideline of your kids' games that watch how you react. It can be people that you work with. And so my question is, why did these two guys pass by? Why do they know about needs of others, but don't do anything about it? They see in a need and they intentionally don't meet it. Guys, I'm going to be honest. When I look at this, I don't know. Maybe it's fear. Maybe they're going, maybe there's someone tucked in a shadow somewhere else and I'm about to catch the same beat down that this guy did. Or maybe they've been so active in their priestly duties and doing good things that they go, man, something else? Or maybe the valley of the shadow of death has bad Wi-Fi and they can't post about it on Facebook or Insta story so people will know that they do good things. All we know is this. There was a need that was presented and the people of God walked by on the other side of the road. But church, I love what Jesus did. He didn't just leave this heavy hang there. He begins to show the hope that comes with the right heart. And we take our example from the last character in the story that Jesus is telling. In verse 33, it says this, then a despised Samaritan came along. Now, maybe your translation doesn't use the word despised if you read in the NIV or the ESV or the KJV, all right? They lead that word out because it's not actually in the original, but the NLT includes it because in the ears of Jesus's audience, this adjective would have been assumed. When you said the word Samaritan for a Jewish audience, you would know this person was despised. I mean, despise means to to think about somebody with real contempt, distaste, disgust, right? You know, somebody can say that name to you and your skin begins to crawl. They can just mention their name and your shoulders tense up. You know what I'm talking about? Please don't elbow the person next to you, all right? But there was something there that caused uh, them to be despised. And why? Just because they're a Samaritan? What does that mean? Well, in that culture, they were biracial. They were not pure-blooded Jews. They had always been seen as inferior to the rest of Israel. They were different. They had different beliefs. They had different blood, different ethnicity. And if anyone to them didn't belong in God's kingdom and God's neighborhood, it was a Samaritan. And so when Jesus is telling this story, he just hits them with this big hook of a Samaritan. But in this story you're going to see that not only is the Samaritan the hero and the example for our lives, he is much, much more than that. It says the the despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. And I love words and this word compassion really gets in. It's not just feeling bad about something or having concern. It's something that that gets on the inside of you and compels you to action. We see it five uh, times in the New Testament. The first one is at the feeding of the 5,000. Y'all familiar with that story? The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus looks out over the crowd and he goes, man, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he feels compassion for them, begins to take care of them. There's another time that Jesus is just weary from preaching and wants to get away by himself to pray. 
And he comes down the mountain and there's people lined up waiting to be healed. And it says, he's moved with compassion and he healed their sick. There's another account of a lady whose husband died. She had one son left and this son then passed away. And Jesus looked at her and felt compassion and he reached up and touched the casket and that young man sat up out of the casket. Then there was another time, one of my favorite stories, a couple of chapters over in Luke of the prodigal son. There was a young man who looked at his dad and basically said, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. I want nothing to do with this family. And he took his wealth and he went to a distant land and he just wrecked his life. And so broken with nothing left, practices a speech, rehearses a speech and comes humbly back. And it says the dad was standing at the end of the road with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face. No, that's not what it said. It said he looked down the road and felt compassion on his son and brought him in. And then the fifth time is this one that there was a Samaritan that saw someone in need and there was compassion for him. Verse 34 says, and now going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. This Samaritan was probably going to Jerusalem to worship and he had all this extra stuff he was bringing to worship God. He's using his own possessions to help this guy out. It says, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn. Now, to ride a donkey is one thing, but to lead a donkey is something else. That's reserved for servants. This Samaritan is taking the position of a servant. He's now lowered himself. It was no longer about what he needed to do, but about the opportunity given to him. So you're going, what do I need to do with all this information? Clint, I get it. My knowledge about this, about this situation, my knowledge about this subject is big. What do I need to do? My desire is that you leave here changed and empowered by Jesus to make a difference today. So I'm going to give you three things to write down, to apply to your life, to, to pray over, to, to think through, to journal through, to talk with your family through. And the first one is this. When we are truly loving our neighbor, we will take the position of a servant. Guys, that is by and large something that's left out of our life. We want to be on the in crowd. We want to be included. We want to be respected. We want to be lifted up. And here the Samaritan gave us the example of taking the position of a servant. But what about going to the inn? I mean, that was a dangerous thing for a Samaritan to do because the innkeeper could see this man beaten and robbed and start accusing the Samaritan. But it says he took him to an inn and he began to take care of him. The Samaritan didn't outsource the ministry opportunity that God had given him. And it says, then the next day, that means the Samaritan spent the night in the inn. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, I want you to take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than what I've paid you, I'll pay you the next time I come. This despised, hated Samaritan not only took personal interest in this, but he paid for him and cared for him out of his own pocket and time. And then he said, I'll be back. I'll return and check on him. Now, here's the second application point that I want you to really think through, to take through and examine. Is my knowledge and my obedience the same or does my knowledge outweigh my obedience? It says, when we truly are loving our neighbor, we will commit to see the opportunity through. Now, now you guys know this. 
that serving people, that extending grace is not a one-time thing. People need people for the long haul, right? You don't need somebody just to show up and do a good deal. If you're hurting, you need your people to be with you for the long haul. Now, for years, when we've read this story, we get caught up in what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan. We should help out. If somebody's in need, let's go help them with their need. But then one day, it was like a ton of bricks hit. This is a picture of the gospel. There was a man on the side of the road, broken and abandoned. And a Samaritan came down. He took the position of a servant. He healed his wounds at great cost to himself and then said he'd return again. Now, who do we know in scripture who's described as abandoned and broken? That's us, right? But there's one who paid a great price to heal us, that left a deposit of the Holy Spirit and then told us he would return and come get us again one day. Jesus The picture of the Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. And he's telling this to this crowd who does not like Samaritans. He's saying, you've got a priest, you've got a Levite. And then this person you despise, hey, that's me in the story. This half-breed that is looked down on by them is a picture of Jesus Christ in the gospel. He's identifying with the one they would naturally hate. But make no mistake, this passage is not just about good deeds. It's about extending grace, unmerited favor, love that we have been the recipient of that Christ has demonstrated in our life. And in verse 36, it goes on to say, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Now get this, this is gonna blow your mind, all right? Y'all just get prepared for this. The lawyer made the term neighbor into a noun. Who is my neighbor? Jesus made the term neighbor into a verb. Who will you neighbor? Who was a neighbor to this man? In other words, how are you loving them? And church, that's the the picture of this whole story. Not who is worthy of our time and effort. Not who can be a recipient of grace. But how do we extend that grace? This had to be hard for this lawyer because of anyone in this story, this would be the hard one to love and to to make your life a replica out of. But then in verse 37, Jesus ties it up and he said, the man replied, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, Jesus has basically told him, you've spent your whole life loving people that are easy to love. People that are like you, people that are close to you, people that you enjoy being with. But he said, hey, there's something else out there. Yeah, you love God with everything, but you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm telling you, true love means loving people that are hard to love. Remember Romans 5, 8? It said that God showed his love by sending his son while we were still sinners, before we had anything. Enemies of God. He showed his love to us. And he's saying, I want you to love them the way I've loved you. So here's our third and last point as we wrap this morning up. When we're truly loving our neighbor, yes, we take the position of a servant. We commit to see the opportunity through. But number three, we take the initiative to love with the gospel in mind. 
Church, we have to understand how shallow it is to only do a good deed for someone. But that our lives, we are the image bearers of Christ. That we reflect what he's done in our lives and made us to be through his son's Jesus' death and resurrection. That we shine that to the rest of the world. And then when we begin to meet needs as God puts those opportunities in front of us, we do it with the gospel in mind. And church, I'm telling you, over the next week or so, as a church, we're going to be venturing into some of these opportunities for you. On Wednesday night, four nights from now, we're going to have this thing called TUL. It's where we open up our church to youth groups and students from all over the state. And they come and they bring their friends that might not ever step foot inside of a church otherwise. And we say, we want you to come. We want you to have fun. We want you to be welcome. But we're going to sing to a God who is worthy. We're going to preach the gospel of life change over them. And we're hoping to see revival spring up from the floor right here. That students that were standing here would experience the love and grace of Christ. Church, we'd ask that you be praying for that. And the next Sunday, we have our fall free-for-all and our harvest Sunday. It's where we make all of our campuses just incredible opportunities for families to bring their kids to have fun. And then we're going to have Clayton King get up here and speak the words of truth, of the gospel, and of hope over those people that you bring with you. Because we've all got people that we do life shoulder to shoulder with that are broken, that are hurting, that feel abandoned, And they just need somebody to grab them by the arm and say, hey, come with me. I want you to come to a place where you can find out there's a God who loves you. A God who not just makes you better, but makes you brand new. That gives your life hope and purpose. And I want you to come as my guest. That's a big thing. We're not inviting people to something hollow, something shallow. We're inviting them to Jesus. And so I know some of you came in here today going, Clint, I get it. Let's be a good Samaritan. If that's what you've heard, you've missed it. We are the recipients of unmerited favor, getting love that we didn't deserve, grace from an awesome, powerful, holy, majestic King and God who says, I love you. And I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to pay for your sin." And that son is going to be so powerful that he will die, but he will rise again. And if you place your faith in him, your life will never be the same. Not easier, not without hurt, but it'll have purpose and it'll be worth it. And he'll be wrapped up in the family of God. And church, that's what we're about. We're about being a light on a hill that says there is help here, but we don't let just people come to us. We go to where people are, the curvy, dangerous road where we give everything, where we show this world what Christians really look like, that we won't just be a good neighbor, but that we will neighbor well. So I want to invite you to pray with me as we finish our time together. Father, I want to thank you for today. 
I wanna thank you for this moment. Because God, you've intentionally drawn the people that are watching online or that at the campuses or the chapel or that are in this room, God, to hear from you. And Father, I thank you that like the Samaritan, you came to someone who was broken and abandoned and at great cost to yourself, Lord Jesus, you drew us in near. God, may we be grace bearers. May we be intentional with those people in our classrooms and on our teams and in our band. God, may we be thinking of those people who work in the office next to us or on the plant floor around us. God, or maybe with that neighbor that tries to close their garage before anybody can talk to them. God, would you give us favor? Would you give us opportunity to extend the grace that you've given us to other people who are in need? God, we love you. God, we trust you. And we pray that you would do not just ordinary things, but extraordinary things. That you would not just do things we can imagine, but you would do things that are beyond our imagination. God, that we would see a generation of people rise up, claiming the name of Jesus, transformed and made new. God, would you do something holy and awesome and let us be a part. Father, we thank you for this day and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. BC family.